Welcome to Mobile First. You'll find bonus tools, expanded information, and key takeaways on our website, EmergeMobileFirst.com. For a quick and effective way to level up your mobile strategy, again, that's EmergeMobileFirst.com. Got an app on my phone for my airline. Got an app on my phone for Uber. So transportation's taken care of in the palm of my hand. I've got an app for my banking, for my mortgage, for my credit card, all apps on my phone. And now we're starting to have some interesting applications for healthcare. This week on Emerge Mobile First, a conversation with Brian A. Hare is the digital health evangelist at Aetna working on their Medicity business. He's a nationally known worker in digital health with a focus on health data exchange, use, and analytics. He specializes in digital health, electronic health record, health information exchange, population health management, and IT infrastructure to support new payment and care delivery models. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you here. Thanks, Jordan. I'm happy to be here. So, you know, we chatted a little bit before this about some of the things that you're passionate about, and I'm really excited to dig into, you know, what has caused you to choose the path that you have because you've accomplished so much and you're very highly regarded as that person that's on a mission to transform our healthcare system through health IT and informatics. So what creates this passion for you? It's kind of maybe a boring story, but, or maybe an interesting story, depending on your perspective, right? I've always been a technologist and, you know, in the nineties, early days of the web thought, wow, this is going to be huge. A lot of people said, oh, come on. And at the time there, there was some room for skepticism because it was only available for large research organizations, for universities, and of course, for the military who funded the beginning of the World Wide web and the internet through DARPA. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. But, you know, it was pretty much done in uh, the open source methodology of development. And I really, I love that, right? That's, I think, having things open and transparent and a level playing field for everyone is important. We're Mm -hmm. still revisiting those debates today with net neutrality. But that's sort of what I was doing. And right around 20 years ago, my mother had early onset Alzheimer's and it was really aggressive. And so trying to keep her in the home in Connecticut, where, you know, in her, in their home, right. Where I grew up in Connecticut and me and my two brothers and two sisters. Now all five of us kids live in different States. My younger brother's an attorney, a healthcare attorney actually in Connecticut. Hmm. You know, he was sort of tr- the man on the scene trying to manage things and I'm the technology guy trying to watch from afar from the West Coast and just getting increasingly frustrated. And the problem was that it wasn't just me or my my sisters and my brothers that could not access the information and that didn't even have accurate information sometimes. And then there were certainly gaps in data a lot. Now, this is the 90s, after all. Did you know back then the primary means of exchanging health information was the fax machine, because that was a really cool new device that you could send things over the wire, and all of a sudden a a picture or a document would would print out on the other side. Pretty cool Mm -hmm. technology, but not really so great for the use case in healthcare. 
Unfortunately, today, it is still the primary way of exchanging health information. But I got really frustrated as the care declined, the level of care, certainly the quality of care and the outcomes were not good. Now, we don't have a cure for Alzheimer's at this point, but there are treatment options available. But the information wasn't there to even make informed decisions. And it really caused a lot of stress on the family and on me personally. And my mother passed away and it's kind of tragic. It was not a happy, good death. You know, now after 20 years in healthcare, I've seen happy, you know, deaths where they were ready to go and the family was at peace with it. And it was not a really heart wrenching uh, situation, you know, to be watching. But then other times it's, it's a bad death. And this was a bad death. It was terrible. And I was kind of uh, angry, you know, at the health system. A lot of people seem to get angry at the health system in this country. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, technology can help here. What are you guys doing? After digging in, trying to find out why it was such an uncoordinated and disconnected care system that was trying to care, not just for my mom, but for all of us, right? Mm-hmm. And mistakes get made all the time. I started looking into the error rates, you know, the even deaths caused by medical errors and high numbers. And so it frustrated me. So I decided I'm going to go into healthcare and try and make a difference. That was the start of it all. I became a medical records director for a company that ran long-term care facilities. I was the first one to put computers in the clinical setting in those facilities. You know, they, they had a computer, the business office had one computer and the receptionist had a computer and that was the only computers. But, you know, we got some computers in there, started trying, I got more and more interested and then went to work for the hospital and the IT department because, you know, it seemed like there would be more opportunity to have a larger voice and make a bigger difference in the community. And I worked for the hospital for 13 years and now, you know, it's a string of events, you know, through, I started a consulting practice, my biggest two clients for a few years there, it was a pretty lucrative practice were HHS and the ONC and then Aetna and Medicity. So sort of, you know, the Aetna, big Aetna, and then Medicity is a part of it, big HHS, and then ONC is a part of that, but really broadly focused throughout the industry. And looking at 10 years ago, I was all in on, we need to pay for value instead of volume. Okay. Sort of Don Berwick's notion of a triple aim, right? where we can improve the experience for patients, improve outcomes, and ultimately lower costs. I believe very strongly that a technology plays a key role in being able to achieve those goals. And so for the last 10 years, I've been saying that, and now it's actually starting to prove to be true a little bit. So it's been an interesting journey that sort of describes my passion. And, you know, every day I see cases of where the healthcare system in this country can be improved mm-hmm. of us. If we keep our eyes open, we'll see, you know, examples of that all around us. And so I look at the rest of our life, right. Where we have Facebook and Twitter and, you know, Instagram and the rest. And then we've got uh, apps on our phone, mm-hmm. got an app on my phone for my airline, got an app on my phone for Uber. So transportation is taken care of right on my, in the palm of my hand. Mm-hmm. I've got an app for my banking, for my mortgage, for my credit card, all apps on my phone. 
And now we're starting to have some interesting applications for healthcare apps. So I think mobile first is a good beginning strategy, but we'll get into probably some more technology talk. I'm sure you've got (laughs) Definitely. And it's, it's funny because I came from kind of the opposite. I went through school wanting to do medical and then I ended up getting into technology. And it sounds like you were entering through technology and then through life experiences were frustrated and and kind of transitioned to the technology in the medical field, which is fascinating. And you you brought up Aetna and Medicity. So can you maybe give us a quick example or just really quick insight into what Medicity is, maybe the relationship to Aetna and then the, the role you play there? Sure. Medicity now is a part of Aetna. Um, Aetna acquired Medicity five years ago. And so the idea being that Medicity is a population health management and data exchange and analytics platform that providers can use to help them succeed and even thrive in the transformed health system that I envision, you know, that we've been talking about, right? Where you pay for value, where quality over quantity of care is is more important. And we look at the regulatory landscape, certainly CMS for uh, in terms of Medicare and even in Medicaid now, they're looking at that as well and, and so, sort of driving care providers and clinicians into alternative payment models that allow them to be paid that way, right? Do away with fee-for-service. And in order to succeed in that, you need a platform that can, first off, enable what I say is liquid data, right? So the data can flow to where it needs to go, remove the blockages. Now, obviously, this is within the confines of the privacy and security requirements that we have around health data. You can't just ignore those. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the other side of that is HIPAA. People will say, people in healthcare, people in healthcare IT departments and HIM departments, after I give a talk sometimes, will tell me, well, wait a minute, HIPAA doesn't allow us to do that. So this is sort of oxymoronic that they're saying you have to give patients a copy of their record. We can't just give them a copy of their record. Well, actually, you can and you have to. You will be held liable for a violation of HIPAA if you refuse to. If a patient wants a copy of the record, you have to give it to them. Now, in the old days, a couple of years ago, right, because mm-hmm. health is so slow, they used to charge you per page, right, 72 cents a page or whatever. And if you've got thousands of pages, it can add up. Uh, Regina yeah. Hoffman, a friend of mine who's also very passionate about ripping down our broken system and building it into something that will last, she had the tragic death of her husband and had to uh, has a really powerful personal story of how she had to, you know, literally take a hand cart after they printed out the records that then she had to pay them for to print, take a hand cart to wheel it across the street and up the block to the new care provider, to the new cancer center. And so, you know, that's ridiculous. We have the technology to improve that. So anyway, you know, Aetna looks uh, around the landscape. They had made a number of technology company acquisitions previous to that and over the last five years and really built out a a suite of companies, sister companies tied together under an umbrella and consumer health services where the idea being, again, that you'd have 
the IT infrastructure now in place to achieve your goals if you're looking towards accountable care solutions, which they are and they were. And that was sort of the point behind it. And, you know, my weaving in and out there, I never thought that I would be an employee of a Fortune 50 company, a health plan. It would, be, it would have been ludicrous 15 years ago if you told me one day I'd be working for one of the big insurers or a big pharma company because that was my bias at the time. Mm-hmm. But I've actually come to realize that all of these companies, whether it's a small startup in Silicon Valley or Boston, or it's a even bigger than that, a company like United or any of pick a, pick your pharma company, they're huge. But you know what? They're people. They're made up of people. It's the people that count. So trying to think of the company as this big monster that's eating everything, I, I don't know if that's helpful, but I used to mm-hmm. sort of think that way. And so now I'm working there. And, you know, what, one of the things that they discovered pretty quickly was there may be a gap in being able to have thought leadership and really a knowledge base around health IT in the regulatory sphere and in what's happening as the High Tech Act out of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the whole EHR incentive program with meaningful use. And then on and on it goes, right? The last actually like eight years now, I've been pretty busy in the health IT space, especially on the regulatory front, but then also technology advances too. And, you know, these big companies tend to not be as nimble, right? They can't move as quickly uh, as a small, nimble startup that's using lean methodologies and, and disrupting the industry. Right. It's possible that they that it can happen. You know, there's some pretty uh, big companies that are really innovative and interesting, but it, it's tough. And so, well, one of the things, they have a government affairs team. I meet regularly with them, especially, you know, if there's something either pending to come out of Congress, the, the president's going to sign into law that has a big impact from the health IT space or any of the different federal agencies, the alphabet soup of federal agencies that oversee our industry. You know, there's regulations and guidance and different. Sometimes it's guidance that never makes it into regulation, but it still holds a force of law. So it's important to understand all those pieces and be able to then pull back and have a high level look so you can really develop a clear strategy for success. Right. Mm. You know, and so I say that, you know, you have to have a platform for success. I'm not a sales guy, right? But I would say Medicity, uh, it can be that platform. It, it is that platform for their customers. So most of what I do are, is around standards. So let's say the HL7 FIRE standard, the emerging standard, for really to help promote data interoperability. Because this notion of liquid data in healthcare, Todd Park, when he was chief technology officer of the United States, and prior to that, Chief Technology Officer at HHS used to say this a lot. We have to liquefy our data. We're not even close to being there yet and really solving that problem. There's a new term now, information blocking, that comes out of the 21st Century Cures Act, which is now mm-hmm. the law signed by both houses of Congress. It passed bicameral, bipartisan, right? Overwhelming majorities in both parties voted for the 21st Century Cures Act. President Obama signed it in December, one of his last laws that he put in place as president. And the Trump administration fully supports it. And matter of fact, Secretary Tom Price in Congress voted for it. 
Now, Secretary Price is likely to take a slightly different regulatory approach than the Obama administration, but still, in all, the law is there. There's no talk of repeal and replace the Cures Act or the MACRA law, which we could talk about because that's really important too. I mean, we're talking about upending the payment system for healthcare, and the problem with doing that is there's a lot of people that are making a whole bunch of money in this broken system right now, which is why it stays broken. You don't want to make changes. It's going to impact your revenue. Talking right. to a group of uh, CEOs, CFOs, CIO types, right? Mm-hmm. And say, I, you know what? I've got some good ideas about healthcare and they're innovative, but you know why they're not going to succeed? Because none of you are going to support me in them. And, you know, they're kind of looking at me. I said, well, because it means it's going to lower your revenues. <laughs> right. The goal is to keep people out of the hospital. We want healthy populations. So we don't need more hospital beds. We already have too many right now. And they're investing millions and billions of dollars, even today, this year, on facilities, building new wings in the hospital. Now, that's fine if you're building a wing for you know, pediatric cancer or something, and you need that. But adding additional hospital beds, thinking that that's going to be competing I don't know if that's the best strategy because I believe uh, Eric Dishman, formerly at Intel, and now he's in D.C. doing a lot of work, and you know he's brilliant, and you know he he has the stats on it, and so his projection is thousands and thousands of hospital beds are now going to become unnecessary, you know, sort of an exponential decline instead of exponential growth. Because the exponential growth comes on the technology side that supports people being able to be cared for in their community. You know, we used to have computers. The only way to access a computer was through a mainframe. You had to have a terminal into the mainframe to do any computing. Um, I remember that. That was a long time ago, kids. Um, (laughs) You have to walk through the snow every day to school, you, you know, but uphill both ways. So, you know, it was tough computing back then, but it was it was cutting edge, right? It was neat to have these giant computers that now, you know, let's fast forward to today, my smartphone, which is a pretty good one, has more computing power by far than my first computer back in the 70s, my first desktop computer back in the 70s. So think about the change that, um, that mobile has wrought on society. Over the last 10 years, it was only 10 years ago that anybody even thought about buying an iPhone because they weren't there yet. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, Steve Jobs held up the phone and, and said, this is going to revolutionize things. And of course, God rest his soul, he was right. You know, a lot of good innovations came from that era. Not so much has really happened since other than improving processing speed, storage and network connectivity, which just makes the device more powerful. But I think we're on the edge now of some really, we're sort of at the inflection point on this exponential curve of, and I just know, I was just noticed, I, I, I said mobile first, you know, be a mo- you've got to be thinking mobile first. And that's the name of this, right? This is the- <laughs> I didn't say that for your benefit. Right. Well, it's by design. It's the hot thing at the moment, right? It's things we need to be thinking this way to make this change. And there's some other things, too, that I think that are really important to tie into that, right? Because if you look at the price point for computing, right, the processing speeds 
continue to increase. Right? Moore's law is what we're talking about in this specific instance of the exponential advance of information technology. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, so they're smaller and more powerful. That's why your laptop today that you go buy costs less than the one you bought five years ago and is way more powerful, may, way more feature functionality. Same thing with your tablet or your uh, smartphone device. And so that continues. You know, there's a lot of debate about what that curve is going to look like because, you know, some gloom and doomers say Moore's Law is ending and the sky is falling and others think that we're all going to turn into robots. I think it's probably somewhere in between those two extremes. But I tend to agree with the data, right? It's all about the data and the data shows this curve and it's, it, it, nothing seems to interrupt this curve. If you look at the curve, exponential growth of information technology, you know, through starting off at the beginning of this, you could go, go all the way back to the development of, of writing, which is an information technology in itself, and, you know, in the printing press. But let's start in modern times and say in the 40s, neither wars nor inflation nor depression nor political unrest and upheaval, none of it has had the slightest effect really on this exponential growth. It's just, it's just almost like a natural law. And so I think that uh, we're at the inflection point where, you know, if I give you a dollar and I double it every day, right, six months from now, I'm giving you a whole lot of money every day. You reach a point where all of a sudden it shoots straight up and really skyrockets because it keeps doubling. That's Mm -hmm. exponential growth. And we're at that inflection point now. So when you think about the things in cloud computing that are available that impact mobile technology, because even as powerful as my blessed phone is, it can't do everything on its own. So accesses services through the cloud for things like voice recognition and translation and a whole host of other type services that are really useful on your phone, but that your phone can't really do on its own. And that's where you start thinking about machine learning and artificial intelligence and its application broadly to society, but then focusing on healthcare. And it's certainly... I think 2017 is the year it's having a big impact in healthcare. Certainly has a lot of buzz. There's opportunity to use tablet devices and other mobile devices in conjunction with um, cloud-based servers that can handle the heavy lifting, the quantum computing really that's required to do this stuff that can improve care. So, Brian, I think maybe to drill down and get a little bit more specific, you know, as let's say a CIO or CTO or someone in a director of operations or even in patient experience, what are some things that I could be doing to overcome some of these barriers to expedite this curve? Good luck and bless you. If that, if you, (laughs) anyone that really wants to try to improve healthcare using technology, I think has to recognize first off this exponential growth factor, right? Because people will doubt because, and you can't blame them. I struggle to overcome my linear thinking all the time in terms of technology, we're analog animals. And so, you know, we look at things and th- expect to see things at a linear scale. It's nice if it goes up, but sometimes it goes up. You know, look at the stock market line, right? It generally goes up over the last 10 years, but it goes up and down, up and down, up and down and hard to predict. And But you can smooth that curve out and see the trend and it's certainly going up. But it, thankfully, it's not growing exponentially because I don't know what the world would be like then. Thinking about it in terms of exponential growth of technology and then how you might use it, because 
by the time you put a program in place and, you know, the results are in and you say, this is successful and we're going to scale this now throughout communities all around or throughout, a, you know, a, a broad coalition of vendors or whatever your idea is, then you need to be able to scale this. Mm-hmm. Two years have gone by and guess what? The technology has advanced. And so this is why in the standards realm, I'm not looking at HL7 transactions for ADT, right? Because that's there, it's solid, and it's not going to be replaced anytime soon. And I'm looking at what are the emerging trends and technologies so that three years from now, five years from now, I can accurately sort of forecast where we're going to be in terms of technology capabilities. And so I would say, don't be afraid, right? Somebody says a year ago to me, blockchain technology is going to have a massive impact on healthcare. The person who told me this is somebody I really admire and respect quite a bit and founded the Hyperledger Foundation. He's on the board of Linux. You know, He helped get start the World Wide Web with Apache servers, and he knows his stuff. And so I'm not going to scoff at him, but I'm a little doubtful. Um, it took six months of investigating blockchain technology and said, dang, he's right. You know, this is huge. This is going to have an impact on every industry and on society at large, similar to what the World Wide Web. And then after that, what the what the mobile revolution has had. Mm-hmm. Massive societal impact and impacts every industry, including healthcare. And I, now I believe that, you know, and now others are starting to believe it too. But, you know, six months after I, I sort of, I'm known as the digital health evangelist because I evangelize digital health, right, as a solution to a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve. And I get passionate about it. And a lot of people believe me. But then there's always people that say, yeah, no, a hair, you know what? You don't know what you're talking about. That's insane. That's Bitcoin stuff, and you should just look away. But it's so much more than Bitcoin. It's a distributed ledger technology. The same thing with machine learning and artificial intelligence, which is a little further ahead, quite a bit further ahead than blockchain technology in terms of its impact and its implementation in healthcare. But two years ago, nobody wanted to talk about artificial intelligence in healthcare. I shouldn't say nobody, some forward-thinking people did, but the masses of CIOs out there weren't thinking, you know, I really got to get AI on the inside in in my data center here. They didn't even want to move to the cloud at that time. Mm -hmm. And now everybody's going to the cloud. So you got to think about where you're going to be in a a couple of years so you can have a program that you're going to put in place. To give an example, at Aetna, you know, and is pretty progressive in, in their thinking, and I appreciate that, that, you know, they recognize they wouldn't have bought all these companies if they didn't see the importance of the IT infrastructure to support their goals. So Aetna strikes a deal up with Apple Computer, and secretly, of course, and then they develop some apps, some healthcare apps. And Aetna says, we're going to make this a benefit for our beneficiaries and give them an Apple Watch. And let's test this out. And so what better people to test it out on than Aetna employees who are also Aetna beneficiaries, right? Mm-hmm. So that was the first tranche of people. And now there's other members, Aetna members in the health plan that are doing it too. Unfortunately, my beautiful smartphone is 
an Android device. Well, actually, that's not unfortunate. Unfortunately, <laughs> the Apple Watch does not work with the Android device. That is unfortunate. And there, but there's Android devices too, and now they're working at, at getting uh, their apps, you know, suitable for Android and looking uh -huh. at Android devices too. But so for a year now, my wife, who uses an iPhone, got the Apple Watch. She's a net and a beneficiary. And I don't know if it's the Apple Watch and the apps. You know, she certainly pays attention to them. The sort of nagware that keeps her, you know, remembering. She's got to get up and walk around sometimes. Don't just sit there and, you know, do your exercises and all different things. Dealing with types of conditions that, you know, folks of a certain age start to see in their lives, right? High blood pressure. If you're overweight, you could wind up being pre-diabetic, right? And there's, and these are the self-inflicted healthcare wounds of society where, you know, it's lifestyle choices that we make that can impact our health. It's not always what happens, as a matter of fact, it's rarely what happens in the doctor's office that's going to really make the biggest difference. And so the Apple Watch, you know, which is relatively new on the scene, mm -hmm. has some great potential. As long as, along with other wearables, right? And usually it's in conjunction with a smartphone. I don't think it will need to be for very long. I think that you won't have to have the Apple Watch will have its own cellular connection and will have its own plan for data. And you won't have to have it running through Bluetooth on your smartphone because that doesn't make any sense. With 5G coming out, there's a lot you can do, a lot of bandwidth things that you can do mobile now. But again, that's sort of innovative thinking that a health plan used with sort of cutting edge technology to drive improvements in health and wellness. Now, why does a health plan want to pay for that? Because if you improve health and wellness, you lower costs. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously different techniques and different approaches that you would take for dealing with seriously expensive, you know, the top uh, expense category with multiple chronic conditions, oftentimes with a mental health component thrown in too. These are incredibly expensive patients, right, to care for, especially if their primary source of accessing the healthcare system is through the ER. Anything avoidable ER visits and readmissions that you can do is a good thing. Hence my earlier point about we don't need all those hospital beds. We need to keep people out of your hospital and keep them healthy to lower costs. I think you can use a lot of these technologies in ways that can accomplish those types of goals, right? That can improve care, improve health and wellness. My feeling is, my philosophy on it is it has to be community oriented. It can't be some institutional type of feel to this. You really want it to be local. Healthcare is national, sure. I work nationally in healthcare in a lot of different spheres. But ultimately, at its core, healthcare is humans caring for other humans. Mm -hmm. And that's a local level. And so healthcare is more local than anything. Can you give an example of what you mean by local healthcare? Well, sure. If, if you have a relationship with somebody, then it's much easier than to build in behavior modification to really, you know, to understand what the situation is and the problems that they're facing. To give an example, there's an elderly woman in the county east of here. It's a rural county in Oregon. You know, it's over 100 miles to the nearest care provider and the hospital's even further than that. And you know, she's dual eligible, Medicare, Medicaid. She lives on the ranch, the family ranch. The kids are grown and gone. They didn't want a ranch. 
dad died. She's there by herself. And, you know, she misses a lot of her doctor's appointments. Well, especially in bad weather. That's mm-hmm. understandable. You know, she's an elderly woman uh, in a rural county trying to drive in sometimes, you know, precipitous weather with in the dark. You know, it's not a good idea. And so she misses the appointments and ends up her, her health declines to the point where she's taking an ambulance ride because anybody's fit enough to ride in an ambulance, right? Mm-hmm. And shows up at the ER. And so how do we deal with this, right? There's a woman that lovely lady and the taxpayers are footing the bill for an ineffective care system that's really not, first off, not providing health and wholeness to her and spending more money uh, than you need to, to get the poor results you're getting. It's just, this is common. You could, you know, you could find folks like May all over the country in rural communities everywhere, and even in urban communities as well, similar uh, types of problems. But if you look at her life, if you have someone actually go talk to her and build a relationship with her, you discover that she actually does have a social circle. She has folks she plays bridge with once a week. She's got her church group, you know, on Sunday and then once a week over uh, for the Bible study thing. And, and then they've got, there's all kinds of social interactions that she has. So she's not completely alone. There's people that care about her and you have to be able to tap into that to the people that care about the patient. You may find somebody somewhere that nobody gives a damn about. I don't know. If you find them, let me know because I'll give a damn about them. But, you know, there's usually people that love you, you know, so buckle your seatbelt. Somebody loves you out there, you know, <laughs> and there, it might be really good to to think about that in the healthcare sense of. So there's a community of people, right? I mean, we've got, we shop locally and we buy our food. Now, the food not necessarily grown locally. But we don't want to have to fly to San Francisco here from Oregon every time we want to go grocery shopping. That would be ridiculous. Right. And I don't want to have to drive 500 miles to go get a simple procedure done. And I really don't even want to have to drive the uh, 7.2 miles to my local hospital from where I'm sitting now. Because oftentimes these types of care can now be provided virtually. And what I mean by virtually is telemedicine, telehealth solutions that you can use. Another thing Aetna has is an app that you can then, it's called Teladoc. They partnered with Teladoc quite a while back. And so if I have a simple thing that, um, that I want to go see a doctor about, say on a Saturday afternoon, I can fire up the app and in minutes I'm speaking to a triage nurse and then I speak to an actual real live doctor it's kind of like Skype, but, you know, it's more secure because they have to meet all the privacy and security requirements. But the, imagine, right? So you have to think innovatively and think about what this type of technology means. Young moms, who I think are probably the driving force in healthcare today, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mama bear wants her cub to be taken care of, and they're not just going to sit back while everything goes to hell. So they're involved and they're engaged by and large. There's some that aren't, and that's a problem. But, you know, they are really, as a group, really activated. You know, this is the perfect instance here where 
an example of someone I know, I know both sides of this. I know the, the doctor, she's fabulous and she's all in favor of technology to improve healthcare and the mom, and they have a, you know, they know each other. They have a relationship, by the way, that's back to that. It's good. If you have a relationship with your doctor, your doctor gets to know you. It's hard to do that in a seven and a half minute visit, mm-hmm. but healthcare has, uh, there's some downsides to sort of the industrialization of healthcare. So she, she had her kid, a third kid, has an ear infection. Now, mom knows it's an ear infection. She happens to know now because it's her third kid and she's been through this before. She actually knows, you know, the Latin term for what, what the kiddo's got. She knows the exact drug that's going to be prescribed and the dosage by the weight of her child. She knows all this, right? She knows the diagnosis and the treatment plan already, but mostly in our system today, first you'd have to try and get an appointment, good luck, and then go to sit in a waiting room with uh, other moms and dads with their sick kids sneezing on each other, and that's that's not good for anybody, so that she could go in and confirm that her diagnosis was correct, and can you just give me the script, I'm, i got to get going, because she's a working mom too, by the way. Mm-hmm. So she's got to take time away from work to do all this. It's very inefficient and there's better ways, right? So with the Teladoc app, you can just simply show a picture of the kid's inner ear with your smartphone and the doctor's right there looking at it and says, yep. And then he prescribed, the electronically prescribed the prescription to the local pharmacy. And sometimes the local pharmacy will even deliver it. A lot of times now, they'll even deliver it right to the house. Or you can just run over and pick it up. It, it saves a lot of time, makes your day more productive as a caregiver. Or, and, you know, if you're an adult patient and similar, you can think of different ways where this could really apply. I think things like that are going to continue where you're mobile. You have a, a doctor in your pocket, right? And in your hand, right. right? Palm of your hand. And so that can lower costs and improve the patient care experience. So I expect to see a lot of big things out of my telemedicine colleagues over the next couple of years because of the technology that's now available that wasn't there five years ago. Yeah, that's really cool. And I'll make sure to link to this in the show notes for everyone to go check out as well. And speaking of that, Brian, I know you're really active and and passionate about this. And like you mentioned, you you follow the trends and forecasting of what's to come. Where should we go to keep tabs on your work? Where would I go? That's a good question because I need to go... I'm going to think about this. I need to know where I go to keep tabs on my work. A lot of times people will say to me, oh, well, what do you do? You know, because, I mean, I'm in that, I have my name badge right here on my desk. It says Aetna, and there's my ID number on it. And I can swipe that or hold it up to the door, and the door will unlock at areas where I have access to. So, that, you know, it's RFID. It's kind of cool. And if I'm at a conference, which I go to a lot of conferences and I speak or I just go as an attendee and learn stuff, got an Aetna name badge on. And they say, oh, no, did you leave Medicity? No, Medicity is actually owned by Aetna. I guess a lot of people didn't know that. You know, so, well, what do you do? I say, you know, I'm going to figure that out and I'll get back to you. (laughs) My boss is asking me that same question right now. And I've got to come up with an answer because it's annual review time. What do I do? But I think at its core, what I do, what I focus on is everything we've been talking about, right? The use of technology, of health information technology and technology platforms to improve the patient experience, improve outcomes and lower costs, achieve the 
vaunted triple aim in healthcare. And so the way I do that primarily is through uh, standards work, the direct project I was involved with from its inception, and now direct secure messaging is pretty common. And you're going to hear a lot more about that as time goes on over the next couple of years, because it's really, that's another area where I think we're going to see sort of an explosion. It's already been nationally doubling every year for like the last four years. So that's pretty huge. Millions of transactions every month with thousands and thousands of uh, providers and uh, healthcare organizations. Just the idea there is to get rid of the fax machine because that's one of my calls to action, right? It's a bumper sticker. Easy to remember. Kill the fax. Now I can add on to that and say, because the fax kills, you know, I working in the long-term care industry for almost four years there before I went over to the hospital side and then off into the consulting and into the vendor and now into the payer. So I'm looking at it through a lot of different lenses and it's the same thing. It's inefficient and also it's dangerous because you know how many times I've had faxes misdirected to my office that had nothing to do with anything to me. One time it was from a neighbor of mine and, you know, I looked at it to see what it was and then said, Oh, Oh, that's my neighbor. Oh, wait, wait, well, well, I didn't want to know that. <laughs> I just, I mean, you know, then it's very uncomfortable, you know, <laughs> it's like barbecue, right. barbecue when you, when you now suddenly you, and you, can't let on that you know their confidential patient health information that you have no right to know about because somebody mm-hmm. uh, misdirected facts. And the real problem with that is you would think that's a violation of HIPAA. If you did that digitally, that would be a violation of HIPAA. If you were sending the wrong information electronically and securely, but sending it to the wrong recipient, that's a violation of HIPAA. You can't just send patient health information willy-nilly all over the country, right? Except on a fax. For some reason, in their uh, Luddite wisdom, they decided that the fax machine was an exception to HIPAA. So, wow. So that information came to me. I didn't want it, didn't need it, shouldn't have had it. But even more importantly, so I call them and say, you know, you sent this to me and now the whoever send the fax, you know, the floor nurse or whoever it was. Is that, is that on break, right? And by the time they get it straightened out and figured out, and sometimes they don't even, they just don't even bother. They say, thanks for letting us know. But sooner or later, maybe they get the information to where it was supposed to go, maybe too late, right? These data are important. They're life-saving data, right? And if you don't have the data, then you're much more likely to have a mistake occur, not necessarily that you made an error in judgment. You just didn't have the right data to support a, a really good conclusion. So I always say this, and you know, I don't know how much time. I mean, I could talk for another hour with you if you'd like. We'll have to extend the show. <laughs> but one of my memes this year is: gaps in data lead to gaps in care. Everybody's always talking about gaps in care as a problem, and it's true about the care management process, gaps in care is a big problem. But, you know, gaps in data are going to create gaps in care. And so that's why I think it's really vital that we get the health information to the right person in the right place at the right time so that they can provide the best care possible. 
Brennan, I mean, I'm looking at your Twitter feed right now and it looks like you're really, really active on Twitter. Yeah, that's where you can go. So okay, that's what I thought, yeah. It's just my last name, which only has five letters. You know, a little uh, social media tip. I keep getting approached by marketing companies and different people that you know, want advice. Or I, When I was doing consulting, I did a little of that. But, you know, for me, it's a hobby, right? It's like stuff that I'm thinking about or reading. I've got it down to a science now where one click and it's posted on LinkedIn and on Twitter and sometimes on Facebook. If it's, you know, Facebook, they, they're, my friends would be leaving in droves if I kept uh, hounding them with health IT stuff. But in the professional space with uh, Twitter and, and LinkedIn primarily, that's a great place to share information. And then I can go back and remind myself of different things I'm working on. So you'll see a lot right now about the things we've been talking about, right? Like blockchain, artificial intelligence, machine learning, automation. And you can dig in pretty deep because, so you know, I've made a lot of friends along the way that think the way I do. And so they're actually the experts. You know, I just sort of follow where they lead. Nothing groundbreaking I'm doing. Somebody else has already thought of it. But at least I've got the wherewithal to say, hey, that guy's right. And so I'm going to go that direction and agree. And, you know, I've been wrong, of course. Everybody's wrong. But I think if you're not wrong ever, if, if you don't fail at all, first off, it'd be a very boring life for you. But the other thing is, too, you don't learn too much because you have to try things, new things that you think you can't maybe do, but you're going to try it. And then maybe find out that you can, or maybe fail and learn from your failure. I've learned way more from my failures than I have from my successes. As a matter of fact, I think that's the secret to success, at least for me, is don't be afraid to fail. If you're afraid to fail, you're not doing anything. You're not stretching yourself. You're not reaching beyond you know the normal, shallow boundaries that we have. And so stretch and reach and don't be afraid to fail. And if you're the kind of person that doesn't accept failure, right, that if you're in a supervisory position and you just will not accept failure, well, you're probably going to be facing a lot more failure in the long run than if you're willing to accept an iterative process of improvement so that you can learn from each little failure, but ultimately in the long run have a big win. And I've seen that play out a number of times in healthcare technology. So I'll make sure to link to, you know, these references that, that you're plugging here and, and make sure to follow Brian's Twitter. Like I mentioned, he's really, really active on it uh, to keep an eye on. Hey here, it's real easy to find. That's why the, that one, I don't know why I didn't think of it when you asked the question. The other thing too is ahair.net, www.ahair.net is a blog. Now I'm not as active on my blog lately like for the last year i've got some posts there but i was a rich archive there i used to be much more active it actually is kind of what propelled me onto the national stage in the sense of talking about these things and having a platform that you know it's amazing to me that actually it did so it's it's a blogger hosted blog so google analytics come with it right it's free i don't have ads on mine I don't like the ads, so somebody else can try to figure out how to make money off me. But they do give you Google Analytics, and you can look and kind of see some interesting things about 
readership and see when you posted it. Is, is it more popular to post on a Thursday afternoon at three o'clock or on a Monday morning at 10 a.m., right? It's an interesting question. And it might be different depending on the type of content or on who you are and who your readership is. I started looking at some of that stuff just in an interesting way, not like in a search engine optimization because I don't really, I, I really don't try that hard at this stuff and I don't want to, if it's work, it could be maybe come a little bit drudgery, right? So do what you love and it's, it's not no longer work. Well, I discovered that first off my readership started to explode right around 2010. And one of the things they have is a cool map that you can look at and see, you can drill down and see where the hits are coming from, right? Based on their IP address, you can locate them. You don't have a ton of information about them. You have what sort of operating system they have and this and that, right? But I started to see a lot more activity in the San Francisco Bay Area and the Washington, D.C. area. And Washington, D.C. area, they were all using, primarily using Windows operating system with some Apple thrown in. Bayer was a mishmash of operating systems, but a lot of Linux and open source people. I thought that was interesting. And then come to find out, they're actually reading my blog, because I post it almost daily. They're reading it in the White House. And when I finally met Anish Chopra, he had been praising my blog to people when he was talking to them. And so I, that's that explained it, right? That explained the rise. It wasn't like all of a sudden I started saying really smart things. Because I don't change. If, if I thought Aetna was all wet and they're full of it, I, I would say so. And maybe they'd fire me. But guess what? If I think they're all wet, maybe I don't want to work there anyway. I was looking for a job when I found this one. Actually, I wasn't. But they found me. But still, I somebody else will find me. I really think that, you know, stay true to who you are. And it really comes out better in the long run. And so that's what I've tried to do on Twitter and my blog LinkedIn's a different story, sort of an online resume, but they have LinkedIn Pulse and you have the opportunity, you know, if they consider you an influencer, right, or whatever. I don't know what measurements they use for that stuff. I get called an influencer all the time and my wife laughs because you should see me with my dog trying to get her to do what I want. I'm not very influential there. But, you know, I guess it's based on some sort of recognition in the industry along with some data and stats that show, okay, you're influential in this particular area. But I have been sort of influential there just in the last year, primarily because what happened in January, I was awarded the Digital Health Evangelist Award for 2017 by a group that does these things every year. They have a big soiree down in San Francisco that unfortunately I wasn't able to attend because we were in the middle of a blizzard here in the gorge. Can you believe that? You, you're from around here, Jordan. We had a blizzard and it was not, it was like incessant, you know, after shoveling three feet of snow, here comes another foot and a half. What is going on? But anyway, the flights were all canceled out of PDX, the Portland international airport wasn't having any flights coming in or out. So I couldn't go down and, and actually take part in the award ceremony. Instead, I, posted on my blog a video of me using my mailbox, snow-covered mailbox as a podium to give my little acceptance speech. But, you know, this is Rock Health, Goldman Sachs, Fenwick and West, and some others that have, these are in, you know, Goldman Sachs and Rock Health 
they're kind of important in the investment community around digital health arenas. So I'm really honored that, that I was recognized for that. But then at the same time, you know, I started receiving literally 100 to 150 connection requests a day on LinkedIn. And a lot of the names I recognized, the other ones I didn't. Normally, my practice had been to vet people when they sent me a connection request on LinkedIn. I'd see if I really knew who they were, you know. You know, maybe it's a similar name, but where are they? And so you look at where they're from. They're from Turkey, and it looks kind of fakey fake or something. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know that person. So I just leave it lay and don't accept it, right? I didn't have time to vet all these requests, so I had a choice to make. I was either just going to say no to all of them or yes to all of them. So I said yes to all of them. Since then, I've had to weed a few out. But it totaled up now. It's a totally a lull now. It's, you know, there's only so many people you can connect to in, in a short time. It's only been six months. 11,800 people <laughs> that I connected to. And so when I post something now on LinkedIn, I get a lot more attention than when I used to because I didn't. There was not a lot of people getting notified that I posted or were subscribing to my updates. So it put, you know, it puts an extra sort of motivation for me to say something meaningful and to uh, to really dig deeper. A tweet is is great. It can point you to a place where you can find some really good information, but you can't put that much information in 144 characters. That's the beauty of it, though. It was designed so that you could use SMS text messaging to update a website. It was brilliant. You know, you know, the beginning of Twitter, that was like high tech stuff using tech message. Now they've, you know, the Twitter community itself developed the hashtags and shortened links and, you know, sort of a language of saying things. Not like the kids these days with their text messages that I, I get them and I'm like, what does that mean? You know, they've got shorthand for everything and I don't know what it all means. Got to speak that language. But on Twitter, the idea is keep it short and pithy. And a link to something for a long form post or, you know, a piece in, in the Wall Street Journal or whatever you're linking to that sort of backs up the headline that you posted. And so it's easy to do if you read a lot of stuff like I do. You know, I read all these things I'm posting. I read. And so I've learned a lot just from reading all the stuff that I post. And, and other people post, too. That's what I say. I follow the experts, you know, Tim O'Reilly says he follows the alpha geeks, right, to find out where things are going. And I think that's very humble because he's like, to me, he's the king alpha geek. But that's actually, I think, true that if you are a, a thought leader and if you're trying to sort of forecast what's happening or be a futurist in a sense, a medical futurist, Bertolin Mesco from Hungary, who's a brilliant doctor. You know, and he's a medical futurist. He would be the first to admit, I'm sure, that he doesn't know everything, right? So he's learning from others in the community, and you pass that along freely. I believe it comes back to you, and you know, you'll be blessed. If, if not, right now, maybe you can at least rest in peace after this earthly life, knowing that you did everything you could to make a difference. All right. Well, there you have it. Make sure to uh, go follow Brian on Twitter and also on his website. And that's A-H-I-E-R. A-H-I-E-R. And also make sure to tune in this Friday for a rapid fire round where Brian's going to be sharing some of his most recent valuable resources. 
Thanks for spending the time with us today and you know, really helping us see what's coming and really talking through some of the regulatory things that you're, you're focusing on and some of the challenges and really what inspired you to, to really have this passion. So I really appreciate you being vulnerable and, and sharing that and spending some time with us today. Yeah, I appreciate you inviting me, Jordan, and anytime. Hey, thank you for listening. Make sure to tune in this Friday for this week's guest resources from our rapid fire question round. And I'm always happy to be a resource in any way that I can. So visit emergemobilefirst.com to reach out to me directly or for additional insights, resources, and bonus tools that can help catapult your organization to the next level. Until next time, think mobile first.